Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, everybody. Well, welcome to another episode of, of the Made for Agriculture podcast. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Adam Jones. Um, we're sitting down here just about far as far southwest as they'll let me drive um, and, and keep my job for, for staying inside of our, our trade territory. Um, but we're actually we're actually down in southeast Kansas today, and, and right with the geography, uh, we want to talk a little bit about wheat. I think I have a really cool guest today, and... Um, Shannon McClintock, and I'll I'll let him uh, introduce himself now if you want to, Shannon. Yeah, well, I feel a little flattered. I don't know about cool, uh, super cool, Shannon. <laughs> uh, but as Adam said, I'm the uh, district agronomist for MFA, covering uh, district seven and eight. Nobody knows what that means, Shannon. I so know. you're gonna have to tell him. I'm down here. Him. I'm down here in Southeast Kansas. <laughs> I'm the the blood of a lot of the jokes, a lot of Kansas jokes, um, and I also cover Southwest Missouri. Uh, originally from Cassville, so. This is down in this part of the world. It's home for me. Um, manage the crop track program down here. Yeah. So a little background on on you, Shannon. You said you're from Cassville, so you were born and born and bred in wheat country, I guess. Um, no, I would say more hay livestock. <laughs> <laughs> the border of wheat. Of, uh, of wheat the border uh, agronomy actually didn't really pick up that part of the world until um, you know about ten years ago. Sure. Whenever prices skyrocketed, it's kind of when a lot of that hay ground was broke out to yeah. row crop. Um, so when I grew up, it was a lot of cattle, a lot of hay, uh, but I've always had an interest in agronomy, which brought me to, to I guess, uh, wheat country over here in Kansas. Sure. Sure, yeah. No, I had to had to drive this far to, to find somewhere where we still grow wheat, um, which which we can we can make lots of North Missouri wheat jokes uh, during this, and uh, we we'll definitely cover cover a few topics too about about why that may may be and and some ways it, it can definitely kind of integrate into into that um, crop rotation in North Missouri and still still kind of hold some value. Just in in full disclosure here, uh, you, you'll notice that we're missing missing a voice today because because we're on the road Cameron Cameron could not join us today so uh, you'll miss his colorful banter I'm sure but it's uh, just Shane and I today so Shane I'm like uh, can you kind of describe for folks just just to kind of give them a good, good background what what most guys are running down here in southeast Kansas for a crop rotation and kind of where wheat fits in that crop rotation yeah so down here down here on the southern end of my territory um, crop rotation is typically corn followed by wheat and then double crop soybeans um, every once in a while some guys will throw a full season bean in the next year prior to their corn crop but most of the time it's the three crops in two years uh, you get up north that kind of that Emporia area and we kind of start seeing a switch where guys are actually putting uh, their wheat behind their behind their full season beans so they actually have a three three crops in three years they're running uh, corn and then they're running their full season beans and then putting the wheat behind their full season beans with the double crop scenario. Part of the reason why we don't do that down here, I actually prefer that method because we don't have, you know, grass following the grass. We don't have some of that tie up in our nitrogen, but we're so far south, our beans come off so late. It's hard. It's hard to get weed in in a timely manner and still have a decent stand. Um, you, you joked about Northern Missouri. I think that's one of the unique things that they could do up there is if they were planting wheat, they could put it behind beans and, take advantage of some of the nitrogen credits from soybeans as well as not have the tie up from 
the corn residue. Sure. I'm, I mean, I know that's that's always what I remember as a kid is is that you know you're trying to trying to push to get it in behind soybeans, and yeah, we've got the advantage of of trying to run an earlier maturity group um, soybean to where they'll they'll finish, and and if yep. you can get in there and get them cut uh, and have good ground conditions. <laughs> That's always a struggle, I suppose, uh, but and have good ground conditions that you can get wheat wheat following soybean, and you know not to blame everything on RMA too, but uh, <laughs> but you know insurability is is a is a thing too, and and you guys are kind of lucky down in this part of the world that you know that I know there's some counties that uh, double crop soybeans are insurable, right? Uh, which changes the thought process and the economics of the crop rotation a little bit too, right? Yep, and in this part of the world, if uh, dry land beans, I mean are Maturities are about the same for dry land and double crop. We're in that four five to four eight range. Mm-hmm. So our planting date, no matter if we have wheat out there or not, is going to be that June July time frame, regardless. So that wheat, right? It's kind of it's kind of interesting looking at that. Um, that is weird. I actually had a grower tell me that he was having better luck with his uh, his double crop soybeans, like yield wise, than than with full season soybeans. Right. So. Um, and a lot of that is because of our planting date. I mean, the yeah. tighter maturity, we need to push it back, kind of beat that, that form spell a little bit. Yep. So that's one of the reasons why our beans are coming off so late, where we can't put wheat behind beans you know, to begin with. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, when, you know, when we look at genetics, um, <laughs> you know, I, I get frustrated at times how much we, we link yields to genetics. And, and I'm not not discounting any of the genetic work that's been done in, in corn and soybeans. I think it, it does obviously play a, a big role in, in some of the yields that we're achieving these days. Do you think, uh, do you think in the wheat realm of things that we've, we've made those kind of advances? You know, it, it always doesn't seem to, you know, you think about soybeans 20, 25 years ago, it, if guys had 30 bushel soybeans, they were in the coffee shop talking about, hey, beans made 30. You know, now if they don't make 60, we tend to be disappointed. <laughs> so, I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like maybe wheat has made those kind of advancements or is there just more at play there? What do you think on, on the genetic side of things? Um, there's definitely been some advancements on uh, wheat genetics. I think a lot of it's been more focused around, um, you know, our disease packages or disease yep. traits, especially in our soft wheats. Um, the yield potential generally has always been there in the soft wheats or hard wheats generally don't have that yield potential, but they have a better disease package. So we see a lot of crossbreeding between the two to kind of boost the disease package in our soft wheats. Yield wise, you know, historically, you know, guys have been able to raise, you know, 50, 60 bushel hard wheat, 80, 90 bushel soft wheat pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Um, with that being said, I don't know if we have actually hit our true potential on our current genetic practice, our current genetic traits. Um, with some management practices that we'll talk about later today, guys are starting to push those yield limits on those packages, um, which I think is also leading into some some breeding. There's not as much there's not as many seed companies out there. Yeah. It seems like for yeah. for wheat. There's just a handful. There's you know, there's when you think about wheat, there's a handful of varieties that you're gonna choose from in a, any year and mm-hmm. they don't change as as quickly as our corn hybrids or our bean varieties. Yeah, sure. And and yeah, you can cue all the all the jokes I've heard about you know about wheat. And yeah, it makes sense that there's just maybe not as many seed companies doing as much high tech, you know, not as much money in the genetics work maybe on 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 a wheat crop as what there is maybe soybeans. 
but yeah, you, you know, you hear the poverty grass, the landlord crop, uh, you know, <laughs> give me a few more minutes, I could come up with more of them, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> the cash flow to pay the bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All those kind of things is kind of what you hear about wheat, and so yeah, it kind of makes sense that maybe our focus just hasn't been on, on genetic improvements as much there. Right. But, so you're saying there's, you know, our, our yield potential is there, um, and so let's go into a few of the things that, that folks are doing to, to kind of get to some of that. And I know a lot of it can be weather dependent, obviously, which we're obviously handcuffed by, but, but looking into something like weed control, you know, I, I know we, we always raised wheat when I was a kid and I never, ever remember spraying chemistry to, to control weeds on, on wheat. So let's go into weed control a little bit and kind of what you guys see, uh, maybe out here, um, as far as weed pressure and, and sometimes when that does need to be addressed. Yeah, so I treat I treat wheat like any other uh, row crop, and the general the, the rule of thumb is always start clean, stay stay clean. So if we're you know if we're working if we're working the ground in front of the wheat, which most of the guys are, um, there's a few no-till guys are no-tilling wheat into corn residue, but most of the time they're they're you know turbo tilling or working the ground, getting a getting a good seed bed, and in, on the Kansas side, uh, guys do a really good job about going out there with their finesse, putting that on. Uh, either at planting or just shortly after planting, okay. um, give us that residual. Really good on broad leaves. Um, as long as we don't have any resistance to any of our grasses, ALS resistance, we're, we're still got good grass control. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when I get over on the Missouri side where historically, historically they haven't ran fall priest. It's been you know post in season or yep. in the spring. Yep. A lot of that goes back to seed companies way back when. Then have you know. A lot of STS beans because you have to have STS beans behind finesse. Um, so in the state of Missouri, they were limited, and it, the original label didn't have STS beans labeled for it in Missouri. So it's kind okay. of been a kind of been a practice that uh, guys have slowly started adopting on that side. Okay, now that makes a lot of sense as to as to why we were just poor managers about doing some of those kind of um, things. You know, down here in the southern end of my territory, we are starting to see some resistance of Italian rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, some cheat, some downy brome, so we are having to look away at finesse in places and start to incorporate some other herbicides that are, you know, better on uh, controlling those grasses because it's one of the hardest things to do is control a grass inside of a grass. Oh yeah, especially but, when you don't have like a Roundup Ready trait. Sure. Like, and so know. that all I assume has to go on as as pre-emerge, then or, or kind of burn down even at that point at, at times or. Um, yeah, so it depends on depends on the herbicide, um, depends on the label. Like I said, general rule of thumb, if we are controlling weed before they come up, it's a lot easier. Sure. Um, we do have some post options, but we do start limiting ourselves on post options. And a lot of those herbicides that that do well on grasses have no control on herbs, um, broad leaves. So we have, right. to, we have to be conscious of that when we're making those decisions. Mix it up, multiple modes of action, um, but then you're looking at. For our higher managed wheat, we definitely want to start clean, stay clean. Sure. No, comp- no weed competition. What seems to be the most yield robbing? scenario there because you're dealing with a lot of winter annuals i'm sure yep um is it is it those that kind of take take out stand or reduce stand or, or kind of provide the most competition or, or is it summer annuals going into the you know as that crop's trying to finish up the following spring uh most of the time it's actually our winter annuals we get that uh yeah. we get that purple dead nettle that hen bit mm-hmm. chickweed um i mean everyone's dr- driven by fields around easter time and sure. they see a bare field out there looks it's an easter color it's lime green and purple <laughs> yeah. those are our winter annuals and those same weeds are growing could possibly be growing on our wheat fields and that that's our when you think about that mat 
that's a big robber of nutrients for our wheat. Yeah, something that you know sometimes we ignore unless we get a lot of field work time in the fall to to do fall burn down of, of winter annuals. We kind of ignore those until we're in there in the spring trying to burn down for corn and soybeans, but that's a very direct competition at what I assume is a fairly vulnerable time for that wheat crop as it's trying to overwinter. Right. Too. And and the big one, the big one that I don't think necessarily rubs as much nutrients while it's growing because most of the time, most of its growing period during uh, while wheat's growing is a is rosette form, mm-hmm. but mare's tail. Um, controlling that mare's tail early makes it a lot easier than you know trying to kill it before you're going to beans because once you once you have that chopped off mare's tail or even a mare's tail over you know yeah. six inches it gets really hard to control sure that makes a lot of sense so you're doing almost pre-weed control for your right for your double crop right. soybeans at that point too yeah because you're obviously limited on chemistry on what's going to kill that stuff once right. it <laughs> right. once it gets up and then like you said gets cut off by the combine right so following week like you know i assume most people are running running drilled wheat i, I have seen 15 inch wheat out there um and i think that may be folks that may be corn soybean folks you know trying to push into to trying to reincorporate wheat trying not to buy another piece of equipment what are can you go into row spacing a little bit like what what do, you, what do we see out there with with the 15s versus the seven and a halfs yeah so historically it's been wheat country so a lot of the guys planting wheat have, everybody still has a drill has a drill um <laughs> seven and a half inches row spacing is pretty common it's yeah most common there are a few guys that have uh, 10 inch row spacing okay. and there's a few guys that are planting on 15s there's not that many um i know markets kind of have played a role uh, wheat acres are up quite a bit this year in yep. this part of the world and a lot of that's because we had a good fall prices are good yeah a lot of guys uh, have jumped on that on that wagon to take advantage of that um so there have been some guys who didn't have a drill planting yeah. some 15. there is there's some different management practices when you start looking at that weed control becomes a bigger issue when you right. start getting away from that narrow road just because you have an open canopy yeah uh, when you think about wheat it doesn't really you know close a canopy as well like a soybean plant does or even even corn the leaves are a lot a lot closer together a lot smaller so we do start having more sunlight hitting the soil with potential of weed escapes right right so just a crop canopy thing yeah yeah you know i tell you that has that has some you know applicability though I, I feel like because when you go north uh, into north missouri they're just the only drills you see are at auctions yeah <laughs> you know nobody they just like people don't have the equipment anymore and um so it you know it's it's probably the only way for to reincorporate uh, cereal grain into some of those rotations yeah um it'll be interesting to see how the next few years go uh, with the the talk of cover crops and yes regenerative ag that's that's being talked about sure there may be a need for the drill to come back to the farm yeah so it might be an option to yeah maybe a reason to buy one yeah yeah it's yeah you know i think reincorporating wheat or something would be a would be a good reason to to buy one it's hard for me to you know i know drilling cover crops is a great um this could be a giant giant rabbit hole so i'm gonna i'm gonna hit this and then i promise we're gonna move back to wheat but um you know it's hard for me to justify buying a drill just to drill cover crops so you know if if we're actually planting a cash crop with it or something that may that may make a drill cash flow a little bit better than uh than what it would just just in a cover crop you know sustainable ag type scenario right but so when we look at planting population something that we never i can't ever remember really thinking about you know as a kid planting wheat just kind of set it on 100 pounds or whatever and took off uh you know a drill 
at least the drills in those days, <laughs> were more of a controlled spill anyway. So it never really felt like you made a big difference. But, you know, the singulation, plant population, uh, those kind of things, do those really play a role in, in management or, or in yield potential on, on wheat? Oh, of course. Um, so when I, when I start looking at seeding rates and start taking stand counts, starting once the wheat comes up all the way through, well, we're still taking stand counts. We're just trying to evaluate winter kill. We always want to talk in either seeds per acre or plants per acre. Um, like you said, the old rule of thumb has always been, you know, pounds per acre. Yeah. Well, it's really hard. It's really hard to understand that because not all wheat is created the same. Not all, not all uh, varieties are. So it's really important that we are getting that uh, seeds per pound test done so we can start actually fine-tuning our rates, making sure we are, are putting enough plants out there. This fall is working with a guy. Um, actually did some plant myself and he had two different two different varieties and there was you know four thousand seeds per pound difference on yeah. the two so we yeah. had to drastically change that drill to make sure we were trying to hit our target our target seeding rate um, when we look at seeding rates general rule of thumb I like to see that 1.2 to 1.5 million plants per acre that's that's kind of general rule of thumb. Okay. There are some scenarios and where that's, that's planting population or ending stand count. Kind of both. Okay. Um, it depends on it depends on you know our time of time of the year and um, our our conditions at planting. So fly free date really drives our our uh, planting population. This part of the world, it's around that October tenth uh, time frame, October tenth, October fifteenth, right in there. Once we start getting past that date, later into uh, later October, early November, we want to start increasing our population to okay. to uh, justify from any possible uh, weather weather related uh, issues such as cooler temperatures. You know, we start losing those those good growing days once yep. we get later. So if we we kind of compensate for that by increasing our seeding pop. Final stand, I like to see that 1.2 to 1.5 million okay. plants per acre. Um, there are some scenarios where we may may have to look at that a little differently. Um, we actually ran into that this year. Uh, if, we, if we followed a drought year, we had some guys that top dressed a lot of nitrogen on their corn. Right. It was looking like a really good corn year. Yeah. And then we got that nitrogen put out there. And then if we would have known this, the rain wasn't ever going to turn back on, we may have changed our decisions. Yeah. But so we get to we get past harvest. We're I mean, we're down the dust because of our because of our corn yields, we start taking nitrate samples and like, oh my, we have a lot of nitrogen still in the soil. Mm -hmm. So we had to look at that and just, we had to kind of adjust our planting rates because we didn't want to have, you know, too many tillers that we're starting to rob yield because we have too many tillers on the plant. Okay. So we start looking at, start looking at uh, plants per acre and tillers per plant. At the end of the day, I'd like to see that 75 heads per square foot. Okay. So when we start looking in the spring after joining and we're starting to, you know, have heads pop out, that's, to me, that's the more important number is having those heads per square foot because that's where our grain's at. Yep, absolutely. So we're taking all these factors into account. And this, wheat's one of those crops that scouting really pays for mm -hmm. because of all the management practices that go into it and yep. all the uh, all the applications we could have, possibly have to make through that season. Yeah. And I think that may be one, one thing that, you kind of, we were always missing out on essentially like I said when I remember wheat from as a kid you know we just kind of ran on 100 pounds and you didn't really look at it again until it was it was very like oh it just depends on the weather you right. know but we never tried to actively manage it right. so um, 
I'm sure there was a lot left on the table there. Right. Yep. In those scenarios, it when you're when you're seeding, um, anything going on with that seed, like treatments, or is that more of like a field specific thing? No. So on our higher management wheat, um, you know that 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 yield goal of you know 100 plus soft wheat or even 70 80 hard wheat. Mm-hmm. We always we always want to be putting a good seed treatment on. Um, I mentioned earlier we're putting a, a lot of cases we're putting the grass behind the grass, um, and that directly relates to diseases. Sure. Um, we look at we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we look at fusarium head scab, fusarium overwinters, and we we have a lot of uh, seedling diseases that could potentially arise from fusarium. So if we have a you know a proper seed treatment, um, that's important. Um, fungicide and insecticide. The next thing we see is, you know, depending on the fall, we have an aphid infestation. And, you know, seed treatment will give us, a good seed treatment can give us coverage up to four inches on our wheat growth. Um, potentially keep those aphid levels down. The reason why we want to protect from aphids is because of their vectors for disease. Um, virus, yellow, yellow barley dwarf, um, can get the plant, you don't see it until flag leaf. Okay. So you could be managing this wheat all season long, get to flag leaf, and your flag leaf start turning purple. Yep. Well, you you you've lost because you forgot you failed to put a seed treatment on. Nothing that can be done at that point. Then. Right. Yeah. Right. So starting, you know, the highest potential is when that seed is in the bag, and so once we take it out of the bag, put it in the ground, we want to ensure that potential stays as high as possible. So yeah. we need to be doing everything we can to it to to push those yields. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, again, just back to the economics of it. You know, they're the economics of forty or fifty bushel wheat are just bad. Right. And you know, but the economics of a hundred bushel wheat start looking better. Right. And you know, it's pays to manage that crop. You know, the, to the best of our abilities, anyway. What about fertility as as you're putting it on there? I mean, and maybe with this question, I know this, <laughs> this the fertility on wheat que- uh, question could be a probably a one hour podcast in itself, but. Um, maybe run me kind of a scenario if, if you're looking at, at wheat following corn uh, versus wheat following soybeans and and kind of pre-plant or at planting does that does that change any of those decisions or yeah following wheat or, or following corn or beans I mean the biggest thing that's going to change possibly our nitrogen management right our P and K management is going to be similar I mean my recommendation always on P and K is if it hasn't been grid sampled let's get that thing grid sampled sure um not only not only for you know our P and K levels, but making sure that pH is right. That's 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 where we start on any on any um, nutrition plan for any crop. We mm-hmm. want to start that pH because the pH isn't correct. Well, we're limiting ourselves on our other nutrients. So that's the first conversation I want to have every time. If we haven't have it grid sampled, well, why? Let's let's get that part figured out. Yep. Um, and then we'll make our P and K K reg. You know. Based on that, or you know, if we're not gonna, if we're on a flat rate, if we can make that rig. Um, nitrogen, nitrogen is one of the big, is the big nutrient that we manage in yep. wheat, um, as well as sulfur. A lot of guys don't realize it actually takes more nitrogen per bushel of wheat than it does in corn. Yep. Um, so you know, when you think about corn, our general rule of thumb is, you know, about one unit per bushel. Yep. In wheat, it's actually doubled. Um, we're closer to that too. 1.5 to 2 range, depending on the season. So it makes nitrogen management that much more important because we we have the same potential for loss that we do in corn. We have a lot, so we want to make sure we're putting it on at the right time, 
at the right growth stage so the wheat is taken uh, full advantage of it. When we think about wheat, we plant it in October and it sets out there from October to yeah, you know, middle of February. It doesn't really do a whole lot. It kind of just sits there. So if we put all of our nitrogen on in October, we have a pretty big window there that we could lose it potentially. And uh, and a window, I mean, that's the time of year where we get the, it seems like, big rains. Um, you know, it, even to at tillering in the spring, like that's kind of when we're getting our big nitrogen loss events, it seems like. Correct. Yeah. So when we start looking at nitrogen management in the fall on our wheat, typically, typically the nitrogen we're getting from our DAP or our MAP or our, our CropPlex type products is generally enough to get us through the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're behind soybeans, you can add another, you know, 20, 25 unit credit to that. Um, and then we start looking middle of February, what we're coming up on. Okay. Um, that's kind of the, the first window we start looking at maybe a nitrogen application all the way up to joining. Um, and that those decisions on how much and timing is going to depend a lot on tillering. Okay. So, like I said, we're going to be evaluating that stand all through the winter, all through the fall, all through the winter, and then trying to determine where our, where our head count is looking to be at and making those nitrogen rakes based on that time. So what are you looking for then? And, and I know you mentioned tillering, but um, what are you looking for then that triggers you to, to, to call that grower and say, hey, we need, to get, we need to get nitrogen on this field? Yeah, so if... If something happens and you know we're shooting for that 1.2 to 1.5 million plants, and we're actually down that 800,000 range, well, obviously we're going to need more tillers to compensate for that lower stand. Okay. So when we get to that ideal stand, um, we're looking for two to three tillers, and that's going to get per us per grain germinated per plant. Okay, per yeah. plant. Yeah, we're looking for two to three tillers per plant, and that's going to get us close to that 75 heads. Okay, per square foot. Okay. So if we if we get lower than that, well, obviously we're going to need you know one or two more tillers mm-hmm. to get back up to that seventy five. And if we for some reason have a have a, a rate over that uh, stand over that, then we may not need as many tillers to justify. And the biggest reason behind that is um, if we get too many tillers, we start seeing these little sucker heads pop up. These little these little secondary tillers that come up, they don't get tall enough to go into the header when at harvest. They rob nutrients from the plant. They sure. Uh, they potentially rob yield because yeah. they're taking up more nutrients. Yeah, and so you're saying that the nitrogen application can affect the number of tillers um, right. that that plant will actually. So you, I assume you don't. So you want the right amount on there at that time, but you don't want too much of it front loaded then, for the reasons you just said. Then correct. So. Generally, our fall tillers are more productive than our spring tillers. Okay. Um, so, you know, ideally, we'd have a you know a decent fall. Yep. Good growing conditions. We get the tillers we need in the fall that we manage properly in the spring. But like you said earlier, Mother Nature doesn't always work in our favor. It doesn't. And so we have to we have to compensate for that at times. If we have a really wet winter, really abnormal temperature changes where the wheat just doesn't grow well, we may possibly have some winter kill. That's where we have to make that decision and promote some spring tillers. Okay. And so you're saying in, a, in, a, in an after soybean scenario, then possibly you may not want to put any nitrogen on. Are you are you cannibalizing enough of that soybean credit at that point, or maybe not right away? Okay. But throughout that throughout that um, that dormancy period, that that nitrogen will become available. Okay. Um, through microbial processes. I mean, it may not be instant. Like it's not gonna be as fast as it is in the summertime. But we no. do have days in the winter time it seems like anymore they get up at that 60 degrees i think today it's supposed to be 60 here yep so we're going to have a little bit of growth happen we're going to have a yep. little bit of microbial activity going on 
that could potentially, you know, make some of that nitrogen available to the plant. Feed enough of it. Right. And, and even if you don't have that soybean credit, um, generally our our DAP rates or our MAP rates are high enough right. that we're getting that 20 to 30 units in. Sure. And just for those that don't know, uh, MAP or monoammonium phosphate, uh, 11.52O, so you got 11, 11% nitrogen in there. DAP, diammonium phosphate, um, you've got 18.46O, so you have 18% uh, nitrogen in there. And so, you know, with some of those fall broadcast applications, we're getting some nitrogen out there, and that can be utilized by them. And in this part of the world, there's some MAP, but a lot of it is DAP because of the wheat, because we have that higher rate of nitrogen. Right. Yeah, you want the nitrogen at right. that point versus, um, yeah, maybe fertilizing for a soybean crop, uh, putting some phosphorus on for a soybean crop. We want to minimize the amount of nitrogen we put, we're putting out there. So a lot of that trade lot trade territory, we'll use, the, we'll use MAP instead of DAP. Right. So. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And so then, are you looking at, at kind of a one shot then in the spring, or uh, are you spacing that out even further than that, or does that just kind of depend on on grower versus grower sometimes? Well, that goes back to that depends on you know what our stand looks like. Okay. Um, if we you know if we need to promote if we need to promote those tillers, well, it's it, we're getting ready to come up to that greening up time, so we need to have that nitrogen out there when we do come out of dormancy and does start greening up, so we can. You know utilize that nitrogen out there so in that scenario if we have to make that that middle of february first of february application we're definitely going to be split shot it because what i talked about earlier with our potential losing it mm -hmm. we we have another window coming up here because you know our our joining's not going to happen until closer to april okay so we're gonna have a couple months we don't just want that nitrogen sitting out there where we could potentially lose it to you know a rainfall event um so we will actually split shot that that nitrogen application and then that second application we want to have it close as close to joining as possible okay and this is where I'd like to incorporate sulfur into into the uh, equation as well okay wheat's one of those crops that directly correlates uh, grain quality based on management practices so the, the better our management practices are the better the grain quality is okay and sulfur sulfur is one of those products it's a grass mm -hmm. which we all know looking at hay looking at corn Sulfur is a very important nutrient. It's the same for wheat, and it also, you know, leads to protein in our grain. Yeah. So Okay. Okay. And are there opportunities, market opportunities out there for protein content? I oh, assume in, yeah. in wheat to get a premium. Yeah. Depending depending on what part of the world you're in, uh, you get into more wheat country. There are definitely okay. uh, grain quality markets. Um, this fall, MFA announced our our uh, our program for. Uh, wheat management practices you know if you follow the crop track program follow okay. follow our recommendations there's there's actually a premium on that because that's going to lead to the higher that higher uh, higher quality product yeah, higher quality product sure product. more marketable for everybody up the food right. chain at that point right and there may be some guys out there listening to this be like sulfur there's sulfur in the soil well that used to be the case yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the clean air the clean air act actually uh Kind of took a lot of that sulfur out of the atmosphere and out of the soil right and now we have to incorporate it back into back into our cycle yeah yeah N yeah never gonna long for acid rain to come back into the scenario but there, there was one benefit just just goes to show you that that everything <laughs> everything has its positives and negatives and, right and life is a balance right right <laughs> so when you look at nitrogen and sulfur and, and those are obviously the ones in any crop that we're, we're worried about management of or you know we have the most control over our finger on the trigger, I guess. Uh, 
what do you like to see from a source scenario then, or you know, what it, what's kind of your favorite sources for those for that nit- nitrogen as we go through the spring? And same with the sulfur, you looking something like liquid or or um, or dry, or do you think it matters? Um, a lot of guys, a lot of guys are running liquid. Okay. Um, it does. It not necessarily matter what our source is. Um, I will say on the sulfur, I would rather see a sulfate form than elemental. Okay. Um, just takes too long for that sulfur to come available in the elemental, or yeah, it's it's unpredictable when okay. it will be available. And okay. It's got to go through the process of breaking down to become a sulfate. Yep. Before um, it's plant available. And it's you put it, most of the time we put that on the fall. It's hard to say if that's going to be available for the wheat crop or if it'll be there for the double crop beans afterwards. Um, the sulfate versions readily available as soon as we put it on. So that's that's the main reason is if we're putting it on when that plant needs it around that joining time frame. We know it's going to be there and available for the plant. Um, dry to liquid, it really doesn't matter. But we think about as many trips as we're going to be making across that field. If we could be using those same tracks over and over and over again, yep. If we could use the sprayer that's going to be making the herbicide applications, the fungicide applications at flag leaf, maybe even head scab, okay, running those same tracks, it makes sense to be putting our nitrogen on, okay, with those tracks. Okay. Do you worry about is there a leaf burn issue at all with with UAN in that scenario or? Uh, always run streamer bars when okay. we're putting on that nitrogen. It, you'll see a little bit of burn, but it's not not drastic by any means. Okay. Um, streamer bars are a lot better than fans, um, and especially if we're running a, a herbicide. A lot of those herbicides we can't have a nitrogen in the tank, so we have to make a separate trip. Okay. From those passes. Okay. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. Are they're usually an inhibitor running with that, or we're utilizing that nitrogen to the point where that doesn't necessarily always make sense. I, I always the, always recommend treated nitrogen. There's sure. I don't think there's a scenario out there that doesn't <laughs> does that nitrogen does, doesn't need to yeah. be treated. Um, it was and was not a loaded question because I that's the that's the answer I expected you to say, but I, I wasn't sure. So I mean, does it happen? Yes, of course it does. But, <laughs> but as we're trying to be better stewards, as we're trying yeah. to limit you know nitrogen loss, the easiest way to do that is put it in. Well, around. and you're still I mean. You got a very, I mean, when, when you're talking liquid, and, and I get that makes a lot of sense running the same sprayer rig tracks just so you're not tracking up your entire crop. You got a fairly vulnerable form of nitrogen out there with UAN, so that, it definitely makes a lot of sense. You know, if we get hot, dry, windy conditions for multiple days after that application, right. you know, uh, we're still still trying to preserve that, that nitrogen to be used later on in the the cycle there. Yeah. So when you look at UAN, the U in it stands for urea. Yeah. So yep. it right there is already going to start the process of sure of either volatilizing or even uh, denitrification. So. Yep. Yep. Either yeah, either one depending on <laughs> one versus the other right. weather conditions. It's usually it's either hot and dry or it's it's wet. Um, so it's it's never right in the right. middle. It and, seems like. And I always hear, well, it's cold outside. It doesn't that process doesn't happen when it's cold. Well, yeah. It, it may not be as fast yep. as it is in the summer, but it's still happening. It's it's still that process yeah. is still going on. And just the volatility at that time of the year, you know, it can be fifty five degrees and raining, or it can be eighty five degrees and windy. You right. know, and then that can change within twenty four hours or less. And it doesn't seem like we get, uh, you know, light showers no. at that time of year either. It's it's either an inch or nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that is very yeah, an inch or six or nothing. Yeah. No, I get it. Anything else on the fertility side of things that, that we didn't cover? You know, is there micronutrients that you usually rec- recommend in those in this, these scenarios, or is that just kind of more field-specific stuff too? Um, potentially. I mean, copper, we do see a, 
we see a yield increase on copper, but generally we've, we're putting that on in a foliar if we are putting okay. it on, and that's going to come more later, more of our maybe our flag leaf application, similar okay. to when in corn when we're pairing our trend B with our fungicides, we do have you know some foliars that will pair with our fungicides at that flag leaf. Okay, that makes sense a lot of times because we're just going over that field anyway. Right. Um, so yeah, that can help the economics of of things too. So we should probably get into uh, plant diseases at this point. You've mentioned fungicides a couple times um, once once via seed treatments, but can you go into kind of some of the diseases that we usually see and, and maybe kind of what triggers those and then kind of how we're looking at, at treating some of those too? Yeah. Before, before I move on to that, I do want to hit on one thing on not necessarily nitrogen management, but it, it relates to it. So on these... On these uh, fields that we're pushing that wheat, you know, 100 plus bushel, we're putting a lot of nitrogen on. Sure. Um, some guys, you know, get down in southwest Missouri, a lot of guys have access to litter. We might be putting litter on for our pea source. Mm -hmm. um, I really like incorporating Palisade into the equation. Uh, Palisade's a, a growth regulator okay. that will actually strengthen that stem. And so, what I would like to do is after we make that last nitrogen application, because we can't run them together unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, after we make that last nitrogen application at joining, turn right or wrap around, come back on with that palisade. And that's going to limit our limit our height on our plant, strengthen that stem, prevent lodging. Okay. And that's that's the biggest reason why. Um, anyone that's pushing nitrogen limits definitely needs to be incorporating a growth rate really palisade into the equation. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Just, yeah. It doesn't matter if you got 100 bushel wheat if it's laying on top of the ground. Right. So. Right. <laughs> and I have seen it, especially behind litter. Um, where we yeah. will we'll go down. Yeah, yeah. It's a delicate balance between high yields and uh, and too much nutrient there right. for, for different growth stages. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Good point. Glad you brought that up. Um, but then look ahead our diseases. Um, there's kind of three times that we could potentially be looking at a fungicide application. Um, we have green up application, our flag leaf, flag leaf application, and our head scab application or okay. flowering application. Um, the most common two are our flag leaf and our flowering applications. Um, green up, green up. Our disease potential there could possibly be some mildew. Okay. We could have some septoria. Could have some tan spot. Uh, those are kind of that green up application. I kind of use that as a a good way to scout. If we're scouting out there, we're out there on a weekly basis. We start seeing those diseases. We may be making that fungicide application. Not one I generally recommend um, unless we have those scenarios. Okay. Uh, cool wet soils, kind of the things we've been talking about with our nitrogen management, yep. could lead to those diseases. Um, mildew, if we have you know a taller stand, a thick stand, at cool wet conditions, we could definitely see some mildew, which robs yield. So that may be an instance where we need it, may need to be making that green up application. Okay. Not as common, but it it does happen, and there's are there are instances that require that application. Our next big one that that flag leaf time frame. Um, and define define flag leaf for those that may not know what we're talking about there. Yeah, so your flag leaf that's that last leaf that comes out right before right before the head pops out. Okay. Um, generally, it's the largest leaf on the plant, and over eighty percent of the yield is determined because of that leaf. And so, when we think about a leaf as a solar panel, that's where all that energy is going to be coming from. So we need as much much leaf material as possible to accept sunlight, to for a photosynthesis to occur. To put that energy into our into our grain, mm -hmm. um, a lot of guys who have been growing wheat for a long time 
understand, you know, rust, stripe rust, very similar to southern rust and corn, blows in from the south, very aggressive, can quickly cover a leaf. Um, we have varieties that are more susceptible than others, but, you know, we've seen it, we've seen years where stripe rust blows in, it doesn't matter the variety. Yeah. It just absolutely gets covered. Um, so scouting, paying attention to our friends to the south, making sure we're tracking that disease throughout the season. Uh, keeping that keeping that flag leaf as clean as possible is crucial. Those same diseases we talked about earlier, uh, mildew, septoria, tan spot, those still have potential of making occurrence, making an appearance there at that time frame. It's also a good time, you know, if we're, if we're really trying to push it, that, fo- that uh, foliar nutrients application, that'd be paired with this fungicide now. Okay. Not really a time for nitrogen. There's not a whole, there's not many guys putting nitrogen out this time. Just because okay. we don't want to be burning, we don't want to burn that flag leaf. Right. We burn that, we, we're damaged our yield. Yeah. Um, our next, our next application would be close, would be that flowering application. And to me, the flag leaf is very important, but this, for grain quality, this is probably the most important application. Fusarium head blight, head scab, leads to vomitoxin. Yep. Very, very common. Um, for this time, this time frame, we need three things to occur. We need a flowering plant. We need the proper, the proper uh, ho- uh, disease, which in this case, fusarium. We're planting in the corn stubble. More likely, fusarium is already going to be there. Yeah. And then we need, you know, moisture. A heavy dew is enough moisture to potentially see head scat pop up. Really? Okay. So you so, don't even need to. It doesn't really even need to be a super wet pattern to get that no and you think about that time of frame i mean you wake up every morning and no oh, yeah. there's dew out so it's foggy yeah uh we have yeah so we have a heavy potential of of head scab it's kind of funny my first year with mfa my first year as a consultant i was being trained and i hadn't really been around a weed a whole lot and so i was getting trained on it and uh if the guy i was training he made a comment he's like well we don't normally see a lot of head scab but when i see it I'll make sure I pointed that to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that year happened to be the worst head scab year, like <laughs> in recent memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I became very familiar pretty quick on, sure. on head scab and vomitoxin levels. Okay. Um, there are there are a few products out there that are really good on head scab. It's when we're making those applications, we're making sure we're putting on the right one. Okay. Um, there there are a lot of fungicides that we put on for a flat leaf that we cannot put on. For head scab, okay, because we can cause you know some grain quality other some other issues that that causes the grain to get rejected at the port or at the grain elevator. So making sure we're we're putting the right fungicide out there for for this disease. Okay, and so presumably those two applications may be reasonably close together. I mean, if you're talking about you know deployment of the full deployment of the flag leaf to flowering, that can be pretty quick time frame wise at that time of year yeah it can be you know as short as a week as long as two weeks but yeah it, it's pretty quick okay um historically the fungicides that we've had for head scab have been you know the, the plant has needed to be flowering 50 60 percent to be able to get control um there's been a there's been a couple new products come out in the recent years that kind of extend that window okay. that actually gives us a little bit more time that actually allows us to maybe up that application to full heading or just the start of flowering, it gives us this, gives us better coverage. Okay. So when we're when we're pushing those yields, I definitely want to be looking at that at those products to kind of extend that window. 
because yeah. historically on those older products, we were guaranteed at best 60% control, which is better than nothing. Yeah. But if we can have, you know, 80, 90% control, I'd much rather have that. Sure. Sure. So do any of those products change? Um, you know, I know in corn, a lot of times you, whether, you know, whether you get a yield response or you don't with fungicide, a lot of times you'll see the, you can visibly see the difference mm-hmm. in the corn. Does that happen with wheat? Does it affect dry down or anything, anything like that at all? Um, no. When it comes down to dry down, no, I don't. Okay. It will. It may make that plant look greener longer. Okay. But the green, the grain is going to mature like it's supposed to. I've actually seen some scenarios, corn and beans, where, you know, the fungicide grain dried down faster, but the plant was still green. Right. And then the stuff that didn't get a fungicide on it, maybe in one of our trials or something. Yeah. The the plant was brown. The plant had prematurely died, mm-hmm. which caused that grain to dry down it improperly, and it was actually wetter sure. than the stuff that had the fungicide put on. No, yeah, I was gonna say that. I think it, you know that, like I mentioned, there's a visible difference in the right. in the plant. It it may not necessarily affect the, the dry down of the grain, but you know I just didn't know if it it would affect things differently in wheat as that crop goes ahead and matures. No, not generally. No. Okay. Okay. It just, yeah, that's that's a lot of intensive management <laughs> compared to what I kind of remember from, from wheat, you know, right. before. Yeah. I mean, some instances we're looking at maybe 10, 12 applications in a season. Wow. Just on one crop. Right. Um, and then as we start looking ahead to our to our double crop soybeans, we got to, by this time, our, our herbicides that we put on that wheat are starting to run out. Sure. Our summer annuals are starting to come on strong. So we may have some pigweeds coming up in those fields. We got to make sure we're, we're treating that wheat stubble properly to get ourselves prepared for that for that bean crop afterwards as well yeah okay is there anything we missed going through some of the you know fertility stuff the fungicide stuff um plant diseases i guess we didn't really talk about we mentioned using an insecticide as a seed treatment but are there any other you you mentioned aphids any other major insect pests out there that kind of can come on or are, are typically an issue just some stuff that you're looking for maybe in scouting yeah, so we think about insects and we generally generally aphids is our number one issue. Our fall infestations are uh, could potentially be more yield robbing than our than our spring okay. uh, infestations. If we were foreseeing you know aphids, one of those herb, one of those nitrogen applications, we could easily just throw an insecticide in the tank, take care of that up. Um, Army worms have they seem to have a rotation you know once every <laughs> 10 years we may have an armyworm yep. issue yep um that's definitely something that could either show up at green up or they could even show up you know closer to closer to that head scab or flag leaf application right um there's some different uh, uh mites or or aphids on the grain that we could potentially see but historically insect pressure in uh in wheat has is not as big of a deal as in uh, say soybeans okay okay you know that makes sense because, like I said, you you hear a lot about the fungicide applications and not as much about about other issues. And so I was just curious, maybe what you were what you were looking for out there. Yeah, um, the biggest thing on wheat is you know it's a lot of management, but it's not just the management itself; it's the timing. We got to make sure we're we're putting those applications out there when they need to be out there. It's kind of like what we see in beans when we talk about a fungicide in beans that R two R three time frame. If we wait till that R four time frame, we drastically see less less uh, return on investment 
okay. than we do on that R2, R3. So we want to make sure we're as diligent about getting that, those products out there at the, the right time. Just hitting the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that some of the, what you've just mentioned is, is some of the struggle with wheat management too because it seems like those some of those timings can line up pretty well with that rig is on a different acre. It's not like it's sitting in the shop parking lot somewhere right. <laughs> at that time of year. Right. And so. depending on where we're at, if we're around joining or what, there's a lot of other things going on too. Yeah. We've got corn going on the ground. We're getting soybean ground ready. Um, it's also important that if we are making applications in other crops, that we're making sure we're doing good tank clean out so we're not bringing back any any possible harm to our wheat. Yeah. Uh, that's why I mentioned earlier on the Palisade application. Yeah. If we're running that UAN, turn right around and put that Palisade on. Don't go spray, burn down on beans, and come back <laughs> because we could have a disaster in places. Oh, yeah. That, that would. <laughs> yeah. It's all happened before, too. That's that's the thing. Like, anytime, anytime anybody tells you to watch out for something, it's because, yeah, it's like, well, I've seen that before. Yeah. And one, of those, uh, one of those learning opportunities pop up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's it's interesting, and, you know, I, we've seen a lot of over $6 wheat um in in places you know recently here and and wheat something that acres can change on real quick you know um and you know the economics i don't that six dollar wheat you know if if you're talking 100 bushel wheat then that's it doesn't become property grass anymore correct and i think i think with you know prices being higher there's going to be some guys more willing to do some of these do some of these uh, management practices yeah so i think this this is a great time for this podcast to come out and hopefully you guys can, will be able to listen to this, implement some of these practices on the farm and, you know, potentially increase their yields. Yep. Yep. Shane, we've covered a lot with wheat. Anything coming up in the next few years, kind of on the horizon for wheat or, or something else you wanted to make sure we covered? Um, not that I've heard of, you know, with everything that's been going on in the world, we've kind of been limited on meetings. I have set in on a couple of webinars. There's some new. We haven't been limited on webinars. We've been limited on in-person meetings. <laughs> that's that's true. Um, what it sounds like coming down the pipeline on most most everyone's companies, there's really no new. There's no new modes of action. There's a few active ingredients coming out, and there's okay. kind of a. There's been kind of a. Sounds like maybe a target towards maybe some grass control in wheat or maybe even rice. Okay. So I think we may see some new herbicides come out you know, in wheat before we actually see them come out in corn or beans. So that's really? something to keep an eye out on. Yeah. Um, grass and wheat historically have been pretty easy. Or as long as we're, you know, putting that pre on, it's been pretty easy to control. We are starting to see some ALS resistant Italian rye and cheat and downy brome. Okay. And I think that's what's kind of driving driving some of this, um, some of this uh, pipeline, some of these products coming down these pipelines. No, it just, it's a great crop in a rotation and, and I love the, I love the idea of incorporating it in, in a, you know, trying to get away from the two crop rotation as much as possible. You know, we talked so much about disease during kind of the last part of this podcast and it's um, just buffering some of those things, right. you know, cyst ne- nematodes and soybeans and some of that just like, it just, it helps to the more things we have growing out there um, at, at different times and just the most that we can mix it up as possible. So so when the economic when the economics makes sense, it, it I think it makes a lot of sense in a rotation for sure. Yeah, and we didn't really talk about a whole lot in, in this podcast, but there are some guys. There's a lot of diversified farmers out there where yeah. they also have cattle. Yeah, and this is a potential wheat's a potential crop where you know if we have a good dry fall, that this is tricky because you don't want to have cows out there when it's wet. Yeah, and you've got fences around your field, you could potentially graze out some of that wheat, get some gains on cattle, 
mm-hmm. and then still, you know, I've seen I've seen hard wheat still make 70, 80 bushel hard wheat after, after grazing cows, after cows have been on it. Wow, that's in, that's impressive. And also, it, you know, it opens the door. We've talked about double crop soybeans, and um, I know down here you guys can insure those, and that and that makes that makes an economic difference, and a, it's is certainly a decision making difference. But in places where you can't, you know, if you've got cattle. My goodness, that opens the door once you cut that wheat off the top of that field for for some summer annual stuff that for grazing that you can put in there, um, stuff that you can even graze all all the way through the winter the following year from from that standpoint. So yeah, if you've got livestock or fence around it, or um, my goodness, even a hay crop or something that you could run in there after uh, after wheat to to supplement hay needs or something, right. it just boy it opens the door of possibilities uh, compared to just straight corn and soybeans. Yeah. And there's some guys that don't even take the wheat to grain. Yeah. They kind of haylage. Haylage. They sure. wrap it and yep. you know, they feed that yep. and they still get the double crop beans in. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different practices for wheat other than just grain. Yeah. Um maybe on some of those instances we don't need to do all the management practices that we just talked about. Yeah, if you're haying it or something like that or, right. or wet wrapping it or something. But I there's I, there's definitely there's definitely a, a return on investment for including wheat into the into Oh, the I think so too. Yeah. And I'd be a horrible conservation specialist if I didn't mention just, yeah, like I said, just all those things that we mentioned incorporated diversity into a crop rotation. Uh, that diversity above ground straight up equals diversity below ground. It just does good things for soil. Yep. Um, does good things for soil health. Any of that kind of stuff that we can do. Yep. So yep. Well, yeah, certainly positives. This scenario is not really a cover crop, but lots, a lot of guys don't realize we could actually use wheat as cover crop too. Sure. Uh, it's a cheap yeah. cover crop. It's cheaper than maybe some of our cereal rice yep. out there. Yeah. As long as we don't, you know, as long as we treat it like a true cover crop. Yeah. Um, there's some similar advantages to to plant it. As yeah. Some, some absolutely. Of other products on the market. I mean, it's it's green all winter. It's um, like you know we talked about the solar panels out there and um, buzzwords. You know, it's out there sequestering carbon all winter. Yeah. Um, anytime photosynthesis is going on. Yep. So um, yeah, it's absolutely uh, a good one to incorporate in the. Um, I think a lot of times guys will choose um, things like cereal rye over wheat just because we, you know we've been told and and it's true that, that the root system is a little different on those on those two crops, um, but but yeah you mentioned the economics of, of picking up wheat seed or something like that to, to be able to put out there and, and create a an economical cover crop over the winter right um, which is important too I mean something it's one of those things where incremental change is, is change you know like something is certainly better than nothing right so no it's it's very cool well shameless plug time Shannon you got a any social media account you want to pass across um, anything like that before we wrap it up <laughs> well I've, I have all the all the main uh, social media accounts Facebook Twitter Instagram uh, my Twitter Generally, it's more focused on uh, ag and what I see in the field during scouting. There's yep. some cardinals and foot and uh, yeah, I was gonna say chief stuff on there. We don't care about your chief's your uh, your chief's opinions, so we just want the straight up <laughs> agronomics stuff. Uh, there's a big game coming up this weekend. Hopefully, we come out the winner. Uh, but my Twitter is used mostly for for in season. I kind of keep my followers up to date on what I'm seeing in the field and okay. trying to um, stay ahead of the game, be more proactive than reactive. Sure. And you guys do an in-season letter, too, through um, Crop Track Program, right? A, yep. a newsletter that kind of goes out to those folks? Yep, our, our scouting program, our Crop Track, we actually, yeah, me and the other district agronomists write a weekly report, basically based off of our consultants' weekly reports of what they've been seeing, kind of what we're seeing this week, what we're projected to see, kind of give that insight, kind of help 
um, foreshadow what, what could possibly be coming and then making sure we're making those timely applications. Great. Awesome. Shane, good stuff, man. I, I appreciate you doing this. It was fun. I don't know as much about weed as I should. Like, And what I do know is probably wrong, so it'd probably be better if I actually knew zero. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I've definitely learned something today. Hopefully everybody else has too. And uh, appreciate Shannon's time and, and appreciate everyone listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.